when my father passed away. To put it into context, I didn't cry for a year. I didn't even cry when I heard, I was there. We had to go to the hospital. He'd had a heart attack. He was on the uh, ventilator and all that sort of stuff. And we had to make the decision, you know, basically to turn off the ventilator. And it was a really strange time because, yeah, I didn't cry when that happened, but my siblings obviously were upset. And I remember the one, in fact, who passed away recently, he said to me, he's like, oh, I know you try to be strong and you don't, but it's okay. It's okay to cry. And I was just thinking, I don't feel like crying. (laughs) It was a very strange feeling that I had, which I felt guilty about. Hey there, friends. Lisa Kiefer here, host of this podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. So I want to take a moment to give a special shout out to my regular GSB listeners. I absolutely love the notes you send me about how the show impacts you, the reviews you leave on Apple Podcasts. And of course, I love those selfies you send me after you buy your very own Grief is a Sneaky Bitch t-shirt. But if you're new to the show, you may wonder why I created a show like this, a show that explores the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives. I totally get that. When I was launching the show in 2019, more than a few people in my life said, you're going to do what? But since you're tuning in, I don't think you'll be surprised to know that it struck a chord. I mean, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I'm no exception, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. I also spent a career as a social worker, as a narrative therapist, and now as founder of Reimagining Grief. And I just kept seeing how grief illiterate we were and the harm that was causing all of us. So through this show and through my work at Reimagining Grief, I'm changing the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. Oh my goodness, I was absolutely mesmerized by my conversation with today's guest, Fad Jamal. She is a poet from London who intertwines her love of nature, the losses she's faced, both death and non-death losses, and the poetic notions and sensibilities of her Persian heritage and the Farsi language to explore love and loss in two volumes of poetry, Quixotic Nature and most recently, Reflections and Refractions. Our conversation in today's episode was so rich and expansive as we explored what nature has taught her about loss in its various forms and the ways in which metaphor and poetry has allowed her to explore the dark shadows of pain and grief. Fod brings forth such light and wisdom and hope, and even shares a few of her poems with us. I just can't wait for you to meet her. Okay, so I'm a British-Iranian female, so I'm 40 years old. I'm living in London. I was actually born in the UK, even though my heritage is... Persian or Iranian. And although my career history to date has predominantly been in media, I started writing over the last few years. And last year, I really took the plunge to explore poetry, which is the main form of writing that I've kind of been enjoying and using as a process of catharsis for all sorts of scenarios and 
things that I've gone through in life. I've just found it to be a natural kind of way of expressing those emotions and things. And so I published my first two books last year during the lovely pandemic because it allowed me the time and actually the space to do so. So I'm just kind of like going forth with that. And obviously the most recent one being explicitly about grief. So that's kind of where I'm at. And I'm actually starting another one, which will be a kind of more pointed element of grief. So that will be coming up. Fad of course, and Jamal. And generally I go by Fad because it's a lot easier for people to, <laughs> to use. Yeah. Well, Fad, welcome to Grief as a Sneaky Bitch. I'm so excited we're having this conversation. We've been getting to know each other over the past few months, really. And so I'm just thrilled to be bringing this rich conversation to our listeners today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm excited too. Yeah. I would love to begin our conversation that listeners will not be surprised where I begin every conversation, and that's exploring sort of the roots of where it is that we learned grief. We learn it culturally largely, which later I would love to talk about sort of the various cultures that have influenced you. But when you think about the first time you witnessed grief in your childhood, what did that look and feel like? And how were the adults in your life modeling it, either sort of explicitly or implicitly? And what do you think that taught you about what grief should look like? It's a bit of a strange one for me because the earliest that I can remember, there's actually a couple of examples. One is personal to me and one is kind of witnessing my mum specifically going through grief. My personal experience is actually a bit of a weird one because obviously as a very small child, fortunately, deaths are fewer and farther between. You're not kind of exposed to that as much. But it's strangely to do with the tree, <laughs> um, which is normally, I know it's, I mean, I did have grief with pets and things like that, which you kind of normally associate with being a child and initial ways of dealing with grief. But it was actually to do with the tree. We had a cherry tree in our garden. And I was obsessed with the aesthetic of this tree. I just thought it was the most amazing, beautiful thing because of the fruit and the blossom and everything about it. And we had other fruit trees. We had apple trees and plum trees, but the cherry tree was just my favorite thing ever. And I just, I still really vividly remember this scene that one day we had a, a kind of a gathering of friends around. My parents also always used to entertain on a Sunday and we'd have family and all sorts of people coming over. And I think it was the summer and I just remember this one friend of the family snapping the tree, like it was a relatively small tree, but he snapped the trunk. And it obviously died, it obviously rotted, and they knew that that had happened, and he was kind of making this like gesture. But to me, because I didn't know that and I didn't foresee that, it really, it really upset me. And I just remember being almost in shock that this thing that I had always really appreciated and loved and obviously got enjoyment out. I mean, it's a very romantic way of looking at it as a child, but I just remember being really devastated. And it, it's just stuck with, I used to think about that tree all the time. Every time I went into the garden, I just, and I guess on reflection, it was a form of grief. Like it's a loss of something. It's the end of something. And I just found it really hard to get my head around because I didn't understand why this thing was gone and it wasn't there anymore. So that's a kind of, a bit of a tangential one or way of looking at it. I don't think so. I think that's a, exactly the story of grief and particularly interesting because I think 
it elicits this childlike wonder and these kind of ways in which we are able, especially as young children, to connect with objects, with animals, with the earth, with people in ways that don't have all of the adultisms that get in our way of that. So I actually think that's quite a poignant reminder about grief. Yeah. I mean, even, I don't know if that was what informed my love of cherries. I remember having a dress as well that was like, had cherry, a little cherry print on it. And even look at photos and I just was obsessed with that dress, I think for the same reason. So when I grew out of that dress, again, I was like really upset about the fact that I couldn't wear this thing anymore. And I was like, I don't understand. Why can't I wear that? <laughs> and obviously, I don't know if it was associated with the two and that, sorry, the two were connected. But it's funny, again, when you look at these things or reflect on these things as an adult, like I've always had a fascination with Japanese culture. And I was kind of thinking about, I remember I've been there because I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> and I've always thought, God, was I here in a past life or something? Because I just love it so much. And it kind of also, like I say, on reflection, made me think about them with the cherry blossom festival that they have. And obviously, the reason that they have that is because they celebrate and appreciate the ephemeral beauty of this wonderful tree. So again, it's all about how fragile life is and existence is and how quickly it can just disappear. So it kind of weirdly kind of connects when I reflect back on that very early memory. And then the other thing that I was going to say was, which is, like I said, was explicitly related to my mum and, and witnessing someone else go through grief, is it was my cousin who at the time would have been 18 or something. They were living in Iran and it was during the Iran-Iraq war. Obviously, I wasn't aware of any of this because I was really small. And I just remember someone coming around and I think it was another cousin and he brought around some yellow flowers, which in Persian culture, quite a lot of the time, it's linked to death and to funerals. And I'm pretty sure we had yellow flowers in the house or in the garden and stuff like that. But for some reason, I remember on that occasion, my mum being really weirded out, for want of a better phrase, of my cousin giving her these flowers. And she was like, why have you brought me these flowers? And it transpired. I wasn't privy to the conversation, but it transpired. They told her about her nephew having been killed in this war. And I just remember the absolute visual grief that, I, <laughs> that it manifested or elicited from her, you know, just wailing, crying, you know, just this really horrific sight for me to to see from someone obviously who's ordinarily very composed and, you know, a very happy, go lucky person and all the rest of it. So that's always really stuck with me as well, just that response, that, you know, shock and horror of obviously hearing something really horrendous. And again, you know, specifically for, I guess, again, a reflection from someone who is very young and, you know, gone too soon. So, yeah, just uh, those two, I mean, two very different, <laughs> two very different things, but I'd say those are my two earliest kind of like memories of some form of grief in one way or the other. So very contrasting. So these two really beautiful stories you shared, one about kind of almost your pre-language way of grieving as a young child, and, and also because I'm certain that nobody was talking about, you know, the grief of a tree dying. Of no, course. of course. <laughs> yeah. Of course not. But then to watch your mom have what I think, again, through the eyes or the lens of a child, you're really describing about this sort of the very natural response to loss, this sort of 
I don't want to say animalistic isn't maybe the right word, but the sort of primal, yeah, the sort of primal reaction to loss and that she didn't hold back. Obviously, she was quite, not that we usually can, of course, in those early moments. Yeah. After that loss, and so your cousin was killed in violence, in war. Mm-hmm. You're living, you know, not in Iran. Obviously, you all you are all living in London. Did your mom, did your other family members talk about her nephew? Was there a practice of carrying forward his memory? Like, what do you remember beyond the grief? Because I think that's part of one of the things I try to tease open in my conversations with people is like, it's one thing to allow an expression of emotion when you frankly can't control it. But how do families talk or don't talk, carry memories forward? What did that look like in your family? Yeah, it's a bit of a funny one because. When you think of typical kind of Iranian or Persian culture, whether it's your Islamic, your Muslim, or whether you're Zoroastrian or anything like that, there's always kind of a dedicated time for grieving. And I think if we had been there, that would have been happening. It's almost like a forced yeah. <laughs> grieving in a way. But we didn't have that. And I don't know if it's because I mean my dad was quite funny, strange, not strange. He was a character, let's say. <laughs> okay. Okay. And it brings up the fact that he never really liked, I wouldn't say grieving, but say if you, if you were going to cry about something, he didn't like that. It was like, no. No display of sort of sad emotions. No. So he was very much, I don't know if you want to call it typically masculine, but he was very much that kind of person. Yeah. I mean, I could go into his backstory, but I'm not surprised he was that way, but you kind of have this conflicted thing because my mum is very emotional and obviously, like we said, you know, she... Expressive. Expressive and had this, you know, extreme reaction. Well, not extreme, it's a natural reaction. Whereas he's almost kind of the opposite. And I guess in a way, it's kind of good not being in an environment where I say like in Iran or Persia, where it's kind of like a forced grieving period because it means that you can react in how you want to react or respond. By the same token, I kind of had a forced way because I had my dad's... <laughs> like saying, shut it down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shut it down. So yeah. you end up with a conflicted sort of idea of, I don't know, it's hard to kind of articulate. Yeah, like I said, you, you've not got the formalized sense of grieving, but then you've got this force in your life, obviously, as a father who's <laughs> saying, no, like you can't do this. And I don't recall them. I think I recall my mum talking about it, but... I, talking about it or discussing it, but kind of more out of earshot of me. Like they wouldn't ever really talk about it in front of me. I don't recall any major conversation happening or um, it was kind of almost more in passing or something if if I heard anything. Yeah. And you have siblings. So do you remember you and your siblings talking about your cousin or just about mom's reaction or dad? Was that kind of a culture amongst your siblings? Well, there's a big age gap. So I'm the youngest okay. of five and there's a there's a 13-year gap between basically me and the next sibling. So they weren't really present in that respect. I wouldn't have had that relationship with them. Not to say that as I grew up, obviously I forged more of a friendship with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, now, for example, my sister and I have a very open dialogue about things like that. And she's quite a spiritual person. So, you know, we, we discuss things like that. But funny enough, I would say my brothers, probably not so much. And maybe that's kind of replicated 
in terms of generation, you know, from my father to them. I don't know. Yeah, it's obviously had an impact of some sort. But we, I think because she's spiritual and I've had her, because she's quite a lot older, I've had a, a lot of her influence. So she's kind of encouraged me to be like that. And I've kind of taken that lead. And I've seen the damage it can do when you don't allow yourself to do it. I've witnessed it, in, you know, in fact, in my other siblings. And to a degree in my mum, because, you know, she was with someone who didn't like it. Who really discouraged any kind of, uh, yeah, open expression. Yeah. 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 And so I can imagine that as you go on to adulthood, what you've learned is, yes, hard things happen, but we maybe just kind of deal with it, move on, suck it up, move forward. So... I know you, you've faced a loss. I mean, we have all faced lots of losses. It's part of the work I do on this show to remind us that death is not the only thing that can cause us to grieve, death of a human. But when you came to that loss, if you want to share a little bit about your sibling, what do you think you had to sort of unlearn or unpack about what you learned, what grief should feel or look like, or, or, or what were you able to shed, or was that part of what led you to to writing. Tell us a little bit about what that experience was like as an adult. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a funny one. So it was one of my brothers that sadly passed away a couple of years ago, and it was very much unexpected out of the blue. I'm very sad because he's got a child, you know, young. He had, his son was eight at the time, so a big loss for him. And it's just, you know, as I'm sure with anyone who experiences a loss like that, it's just absolute disbelief that that's happened. And I think I'm fortunate enough that between the time that happened and my dad passing, which was like, actually it was, it's 20 years this year that he passed. I've learned a lot (laughs) about myself and that kind of growing up experience. And I guess beyond grief, I've had to do a lot of unpacking, (laughs) like emotionally and psychologically as a result of my upbringing. So in a way, by the time this unfortunate incident came about, I kind of was able to grieve a lot more freely. So the difference being, for example, is when my father passed away, again, he was relatively young and it was out of the blue. You know, he's one of those people that I thought, oh, he'll live forever. Whatever happens, you know, he just had that sort of energy. Robust. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Just like he's never going to go. So it still came as a, a shock. But I mean, to put it into context, I didn't cry for a year I didn't even cry when I heard, I was there, we had to go to the hospital, he'd had a heart attack, he was on the uh, ventilator and all that sort of stuff, and we had to make the decision, you know, basically to turn off the ventilator, and it was a really strange time because, yeah, I didn't cry when that happened, but my siblings obviously were upset, and I remember the one, in fact, who passed away recently, he said to me, he's like, oh, I know you you try to be strong and you don't, you know, you don't want to, but it's okay. It's okay to cry. And I was just thinking, I don't feel like crying. (laughs) It was a very strange feeling that I had, which I felt guilty about. And even at the funeral, and I was witnessing all these people being really emotional. And I was like, well, why aren't I, why am I not experienced the same thing? Why am I not, I should be really upset here. And I remember it's pretty much a year later, I just suddenly, I think I was in bed or something and I woke up and I just burst into tears. Like <laughs> this thing, and I, it was just the strangest thing. And I know 
in part, it would have been because I was never allowed. I don't know. I just must have had this block. Internalized that you had blocked it. Yeah, this internalized block. And actually, I do have one of the poems in my book is about that. And it's called Numb. And I just, yeah, I think I was just sort of frozen. This part that would ordinarily have grieved or had a natural response was just kind of shut down, like we said earlier. So over the years, I've kind of, if anything, I've probably gone the other way, complete. (laughs) I'll cry at the drop of a hat. (laughs) I could be watching an advert for something and I'll be bawling my eyes out. So I just remember, again, the initial call of hearing the news about my brother and I was on a train platform waiting to go to work and it was like eight o'clock in the morning or something. And I was just like, my sister, it was just, you know, he's gone. My sister. And I was like, what? And, um, I, again, that just absolute disbelief, but it just hit me like a train. Literally, I mean, not, no pun intended. I was sitting <laughs> I don't mean to make light of it, but I just remember yeah, I just felt all over the place. It was a completely different feeling and reaction and the thoughts that were going through my head. And But I mean, it was a different relationship as well, let alone, <laughs> let alone that kind of like... A different time in your life or, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think you brought up a couple of really interesting points there. One is that we all our own reactions to grief, whether they are because we have some block, which we're going to talk about later, and I'd love for you to maybe read that poem if you'd like. But I think what's important to remind ourselves, to remind those that we love who are grieving, is that everybody's, though I think we tend to sort of shove down grief in general writ large in in many Western cultures anyway, I also think we have these false beliefs and assumptions that grief needs to look the same way in a certain way for everybody at the same time. And so what happens for instance, for you at the funeral or even at his, your dad's bedside when you're not crying, that's just the reaction that you have. There's no good or bad. There's no value. But what happens because we have sometimes literally people telling us, you know, shaking. I mean, I've had guests on who talked about relatives practically like shaking them in the shoulders to, you know, like emit emotion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we also tell ourselves, I call that the shoulds of grief. So then that turns into this internalized guilt and shame. And then we start to question, you know, what is the legitimacy of our relationship or our love or our loss? And so I think that's such a, an important gift that you gave in telling that story is to remind us that we are, whether we need to look at what's blocking us, and I don't discourage that, of course, we also have to have some grace and compassion for ourselves and for others, especially, you know, I think we sort of in some ways, in early grief, we reward the crying, the sorrowful, the emotional, and we we criticize the, the stoic or the silent. And then something flips where some phase, I don't know if it's two weeks or a month, we punish the crying, the emotional, the sorrowful, and we celebrate and applaud and give accolades to the stoic and the strong. Yeah. You know, and so it's this sort of odd thing that happened. And then to your point, we do the same, we apply those same rules to ourselves and to others across different grief experiences. So how you grieve for your dad, of course, is different than how you grieve for your brother, not just because you were at a different place in your life, but because you had a different relationship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's funny. I mean, I was just thinking when you said, and when I said myself about 
not crying, for example, with my father. I was remembering a girl who I used to work with and her, I mean, she had a horrendous story. Her, her partner committed suicide. And I remember someone else saying they had been to see her, like some friends had gone to kind of cheer her up. And one of them saying, oh, it was really weird. She was like having a good time. She was, you know, having a drink and this, that, and the other. And it's like, until you're in that person's shoes, you don't know what they're doing and how they're dealing with it. And if that, you know, what's going through their head. That was a snapshot in time. Yeah, and it's funny, like the judgment that came with, oh, well, she seems fine. Like, that's weird. She's not, and it's like, but you don't know what that. <laughs> right. Well, and then there's those stories of, well, she must not have left him or she must not care. And yeah. yeah. It's just crazy that, like you say, judgment or even self-judgment, like I said about myself, it's just... Um, it goes both ways. It yeah. certainly goes. I mean, it's sort of everything. And this is why I sort of always, I frame the work that I do as narrative. It's very rooted in understanding the sort of cultural influences on our psychosocial, emotional states. Also, how that passes generationally through modeling of behavior, even epigenetics, when we think about how trauma passes through generations. But this point that you're saying is, even those judgments then start to reinforce or shape what we believe grief could and should look like and then how we behave. I can remember going to a party with a group of friends. So when my husband passed, it was eight couples and then it was seven couples and Lisa. That's how mm. I referred. <laughs> to, yeah. That was the name of our group was yeah, seven couples and Lisa. Yeah. But I remember maybe a year out at a party with the group and I remember laughing at something someone was telling me. I was having a drink, one of my girlfriends. And I remember seeing the gaze of some of the husbands. And I don't know that they were judging me or not, but I knew enough to know I started an internal monologue. Should I be laughing? Are they judging me? Do they not think that I love or miss Eric, that I'm grieving? Right? So even these ways, it's just these sneaky, well, grief is a sneaky yeah. <laughs> You know, that comes in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd love if you wouldn't mind sharing one of your works. It could be numb you were just talking about or another piece of work. Do you have your experience of grief? It's a pretty universal one for all of us. Yeah. Yeah, more than happy to read that. I mean, it's literally two lines. <laughs> it's a very succinct word. As I said, it's called numb. And it is, you stifled my tears for so long. I didn't want or know how to cry for you when the time came. And it was just, yeah, I think I just felt like I don't even know what to do. Yeah. I don't even know how to. Yeah. And as you said, because he he was an influence in your life that modeled, don't let it come out. Yes. He's very much that. And so the, maybe the irony in a way to like, how do you grieve a man who didn't want you to to grieve in a way? Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. There, there was actually, there was one that was, it's kind of almost the opposite. Yeah, it's almost the opposite because that one's about suppressing the tears. And this one is called Carnival of Black. My tears creak at first to escape, then dance fiercely and freely as they fall. Every vision and memory corrupted, made crooked, contorted, until there is nothing left. Mm. So that is uh, mm. really letting go. <laughs> yeah. And then there's one more which kind of relates to that one, which is called Cavern. I finally filled the vast, dark, empty chamber that lay within, flooding it with tears. All the tears I never did or could cry. So many I could no longer remember what they were for or where they came from. An endless streaming of sorrow. 
with that, I kind of feel, going back to my point earlier about I feel like I've kind of gone completely the other way. It's like I said, there'll be really small, <laughs> there'll be the smallest thing that I'll watch or see and I literally just start crying. And I think it's just because... I was never allowed to, so sort of making up for lost time. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. It's just a release of everything. So yeah. When we come back, Fad and I explore how it is that poetry, metaphor, and other artistic expressions help us discover the aspects of our pain and grief that everyday language, frankly, makes it really hard to access. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Fad Jamal. Thank you so much for reading those beautiful pieces. And I think in your in your poetry, in your language, you helped us elicit, in some ways, some universal experiences all of us have as grievers, even though we all navigate and approach our own grief in different ways. There's something about the sort of succinctness, but also the description and the sort of poetic language about those pieces. I know for me, and I can imagine for the listeners, resonated there. And I and I wonder if we might start there. Folks who follow my work at Reimagining Grief and and listen to the show know that I'm I'm a metaphor junkie. I I do in the folks that I work with, even one on one, I feel that my sessions are often just an exploration of metaphors because I believe poetry, metaphor, even sculpture, performative dance, music, all of these artistic expressions, all of these ways of making language come at us in this, I almost sort of sort of say back door or side door to our soul in a way that we can not only make meaning of something that feels so incomprehensible, but it also allows us to feel seen and witnessed and held in a way that's very different than even the person you love most looking you in the face and saying, I'm sorry this is happening to you. You know, I love you. There's something about these forms that, I don't know, has this softer ethereal light that can kind of filter through any of those hard barriers that we erect for ourselves. Have you experienced that as you've developed into your writing and and also maybe sort of culturally where your love of poetry and metaphor have come from? Yeah, I mean, if I start with the second part, I mean, I was brought up with a lot of reference to poetry because I think we talked about before Persian poetry and per- within Persian culture as a broader sense is huge. It's It's actually its own subject in school. So you'll have you know, the equivalent of an English lesson, for example, but you'll have within that, you'll have a separate poetry subject, which, you know, I haven't been brought up there, but my sister remembers and she was saying, oh, it's, it's its own thing. It's very much a revered form of art. And the way the language is, is it's, it uses a lot of metaphor and poetry, even in day-to-day kind of like speaking. So, you know, sometimes even the most kind of basic day-to-day interactions will encompass a lot of poetic language. I think there was, I don't know how to, li- it probably will sound a bit strange, literally translated, but there's a, there's kind of like a phrase, which is for welcoming people into your house or something. And it's, it's literally like, it's, it'll sound a bit odd when I say it, but it'll be like your, your sort of like your footsteps are on my, welcome on my eyes. It's like, and I, it doesn't sound quite right in English, but that's, 
you know, it's poetry. And when you say it in the in Farsi, it's like just a really lovely sentiment. So that has influenced me a lot. And, you know, you've got the really kind of classic or well-known Persian poets like Rumi and Hafez. And Rumi in particular is, I mean, they're all very philosophical, but Rumi in particular resonates. And I think he kind of transcends most cultures and things. And yes, yes. You know, one of my favorite poems by him is The Guest House, which is just such an amazing and insightful piece of poetry that not only transcends culture, transcends time. You know, it was written however many years ago, and it's still just as applicable because, like you said before, these things are universal. And even though an experience might be individual, most of these things are shared in terms of, you know, what we have to go through and the feelings they might evoke. So, I and my mum, even her specifically, again, the way she speaks, I mean, she's from a particular part of Iran called Shiraz, which there are a couple of cities that probably use more poetry, so to speak. So again, just listening to her, I don't know, maybe by osmosis, I absorbed that kind of way of, you know, hearing things, or I like to kind of almost learn in a way. It's just easy for me to understand things like that. And like you said, it's a softer way of positioning things or couching things with people. Especially things that we don't have other language for. So when you're thinking about death, loss, or grief, or or any hardships or trauma, we don't have our everyday language to make sense or meaning of it or to comprehend it. And so metaphor or poetry, again, or performative expressions, I've wept more sometimes at a piece of, you know, a dance performance you know, then maybe somebody consoling me and giving me a hug and telling me they're sorry. And I think it helps us find language is the only way I can see, but language is even not as incomplete. Yeah. I think because you say it evokes these sort of certain feelings within you. And I'm just thinking kind of in terms of metaphor. I mean, I use a lot of nature within my poetry, like both, I mean, the first book is called Quixotic Nature, and that's a play on, that's my kind of persona, but also because I use nature as a vehicle to kind of express myself. And there's so much that I witness or see that kind of inspires me to think, oh, that's how I feel. That makes me feel this, and that kind of correlates with this here. Or So there's also a lot, a lot of that that I use in my poems, and that's very prevalent in Persian culture as well in poetry. Nature is a massive thing. I mean, we even we just had the Persian New Year, which is based on the spring equinox, and it's all to do with nature. It's all, you know, spring equinox is to do with rebirth and renewal and all that kind of stuff. And just a couple of days ago, it's 13 days after the New Year, there's a whole ritual where you you kind of gather with your friends and family and you go somewhere in nature to have a picnic and celebrate the earth is offering you and stuff like that. So it's an extremely big part of <laughs> where I've come from. And it's just kind of, it's very much a part of me. And I, that definitely feeds into my work. Yeah. What about your own evolving grief experiences? I mean, your, your father's loss, your, then much more recently, your brother's loss, but also, as I said before, I can imagine you like all of us have had other kinds of qualities of losses, relationships, pets, maybe even places and spaces. What was it about those kind of accumulation of losses that made you start to explore grief with the poetic form? What drew you there? 
Well, I kind of have to go back a bit further in terms of why I started writing in the first place. Like I said, it was a it was a process of catharsis, cathartic exercise for me. I actually started writing a few years ago, and it was inspired by a friend who was going through a hard time, and I wanted to write something for him. And in doing that, it kind of opened me up to this thing of, oh, <laughs> actually, maybe this is good for me to do more broadly. And I only started writing as of when I sort of felt quite extreme emotions about certain incidents or circumstances, I would then write a poem or I'd, or I'd see something that would evoke a feeling that I might have felt about a certain incident or something that had just happened recently. And that's how I kind of initially got going with it. The first book I wrote, Quixotic Nature, is about love in its different forms. So friendship, family, romantic, and self. So it was the four different types of love. And they're kind of open to, obviously, from somewhat the outsider looking in, they're open to interpretation. It doesn't matter how you read it, if it's, if you think it's about familial love romance or, or you think, it, yeah, it, it's, they're all kind of mainly interchangeable. They might, there might be the odd one that is quite specific or obvious as to what it relates to, but otherwise it's, you know, it's open. To, I remember a, a friend saying to me once, oh, is this about so-and-so? And I was like, oh no, that's about me. That's <laughs> just about myself. So, but within that, I kind of wasn't, although I was writing about love, I wasn't really aware that I was also writing about loss, inevitably, because... You cannot disconnect the two. It's symbiotic. Yeah, yeah. yeah this, like they're completely, you know, joined together inextricably. And I remember someone asked me sort of a question that made, that prompted me to recall a memory I have when I was dating someone. And I didn't realize it was coming to an end, <laughs> but... We happen to be going for a walk and there's a, there's a, a place in central London, and there's a monument which has a quote from Queen Elizabeth, which is grief is the price we must pay for love. And I remember reading, walking past this monument going, oh, wow, what a really incredible and heavy <laughs> sentiment. And I, I remember being really struck by it. Little did I know that about half an hour later, that relationship was going to be ending and I was devastated. So it was like the irony of seeing that. But within those poems, as I said, you know, loss and grief comes as a result of loving something or someone or somewhere or an idea or whatever it a dream yeah yeah a dream and that's why the next book I thought well it was kind of triggered by the loss of my brother but I thought you know what I'm gonna address this and again as a cathartic exercise put my feelings down into words but also it allowed me the opportunity to like we touched upon before is go through the different facets of grief and explore those, whether it's shock, whether it's guilt, whether it's acceptance, whether it's, you know, the depression part, and kind of honor them in a way and give them the the respect <laughs> that they kind of those things or elements deserve in the grieving process. And what that meant was it wasn't just about my brother. Inevitably, it became about all sorts of things that I felt that I'd lost and grieved or hadn't grieved or, you know, it kind of sent me down a bit of a rabbit hole in that sense. But it's, again, as the title suggests, it's reflection and refraction. You kind of go through these things to come out the other side, <laughs> like the creation of a rainbow. So, yeah, I mean, it's it was quite challenging, isn't the right word, but the process was very in-depth <laughs> So because I really had to do a lot of self-exploration and, and really understand how I was feeling. And, and like you said before, not to judge myself for feeling certain things and to just let it be to sort of arrive with curiosity which is yeah. is is a 
is a good quality, of course, in a writer, but we don't we don't gift ourselves often curiosity, particularly when it comes to, you know, the exploration of our inner landscape, especially those aspects of ourselves that we have maybe kept hidden or we've kind of not learned how to like befriend or accompany those aspects of ourselves. Yeah. Even though kind of putting it out there. There is also a slight fear there that someone's going to read me like, oh, is that what <laughs> is that what you felt or is that what you? And it's like, no, I'm going to own this and this is what I felt. Yeah. So there's a vulnerability there in the writing. Yeah, exactly. And all you can hope is that, like we said before, is that they ultimately are, although they come from or stem from unique experiences, that they are universally shared and that it will resonate with someone somewhere. And obviously, if not all of them, there might be one within at least one or two, you know, that people will be like, ah, yeah, that's that's how I felt. Yeah. Part of what I try to remind people is interesting that's just having this conversation with one of the folks that I that I see this week is that these losses in, in all the myriad forms that that we face are in some ways a disconnection from ourselves. So also a loss of our own identity in the relationship of whatever that loss was. But also it has an isolating kind of effect in our and our sort of inner human need is to feel belonging. And so I think as you start to maybe as you were saying even in the process of writing this sort of examine the inner landscape and discover some tender or hard or sharp corners where where there was no you know where there was some isolation or some hurt or some disconnection that's we're naturally uncomfortable with that but like your title which i love reflections and refractions we can't come to and heal is too maybe a cliche of a word but we can't come to soften those hard edges or to fill those empty spaces unless we do that sort of inner reflection and when we do that and then we can sort of refract back out and you know what we've learned or or what we've created or evolved in our own journey how powerful of a gift is that to somebody else to see that there's some other way of being, that there's a possibility of some rainbow, to use your metaphor, that there's something that can come of that difficult work. But back to the culture, we're not really encouraged to sort of do that inner landscape work. It's like just sweep it under the rug or, you know, in a, in the U.S., we say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so it takes some courage to do to do what you did, and I say, and for all of us to do the sort of inner examination, to get at our inner knowing. I think we have an inner knowing that gets cluttered with all the kind of garbage that we learn. And I think to add to that, because you you were asking me earlier, obviously, about it not being literal grieving of death necessarily, and I obviously said about the that relationship. It's funny, again, how little people are given the opportunity, like you said, might get swept under the carpet, but to grieve things that aren't a death, a physical death. It's like someone could be really upset about whatever. Like I mean, right now in the time of the pandemic, people's, you know, dream careers or weddings or celebrations have been, you know, I think that's worthy of honoring and naming as loss. Yeah, exactly. And again, people would a lot of people would probably be like, oh, come on. Like, don't be silly or get over it or whatever it might be. Or even, I mean, it is more serious, but if you, like the end of a friendship or something, for whatever reason it might be, it's like, I have had that. And I think in a way, it's sometimes been worse that, than <laughs> because you're like, that person's still there. 
but then we just don't have this relationship. And again, it's the tearing apart of what did our friendship even mean? Who am I not in relation with this person? Yeah. Yeah. So, and again, I think a lot of the time outsiders looking in wouldn't give it the kind of the respect or understanding that it might deserve or maybe potentially even support to that person that might need it, whatever it might be. So, or compassion at its most basic. Yeah. And, you know, to your exploration of the numb phase and sort of the ways in which there was some sort of visceral blockage there to sort of the expression of grief is the more times that we don't give and honor space for the maybe lowercase l losses and the bigger case l losses, the more blockage, the more numbness, then we don't know how to we think we're just quote unquote moving on or sort of putting it on the shelf, but it doesn't go away. It's still there. It's it's in the junk drawer of your, you know, sort of of your emotional life. And so just coming back to the work you do is why I so appreciate this exploration that you're doing and that you're using your own exploration and your own gift of writing as a vehicle so that those of us reading it can maybe find some language or tools to help start cleaning out the junk drawer of our losses and to sort of really attend to all that we need in the, in those inner spaces so that, by the way, we can show up for ourselves better and sort of live into whatever our meaning or purpose is, however you want to say it, but also so we can be better and more compassionate and, and empathetic showing up for others. Yeah, very true. Right? I definitely feel like I've, you know, having learned a lot more about myself, that I'm able to be there for others in a more present way, in a more understanding way, in a more compassionate way, and non-judgmental way. <laughs> and just, again, allowing people to do what they need to do. And if it's that they need time, they need time. If it's that they want to move on, they want to move on. Because, yeah, all too often society dictates a certain way of like treating that person or allowing them, inverted commas, <laughs> what, they, what they should or shouldn't be doing, which is just obviously ridiculous. Absurd, yeah. Yeah, and totally counterproductive. So it's just very detrimental, isn't it? And that's what I found, you know, like I say, going back to the beginning and with my dad, that point, grieving versus now, it's kind of as a result of all the unpacking, I just feel a lot more free to to express what I want to express or not. Yeah. When we come back... I asked Fa to share a bit about what she experienced as she explored love in writing Quixotic Nature and grief in completing Reflections and Refractions. You might be comforted to know that hope emerged. As you heard at the top of the show, it's my mission to change the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. And either through this episode or as a longtime listener of the show, or maybe because you follow the writing I do daily at Reimagining Grief on social media. What you have discovered about me is that I'm a metaphor junkie. It's true, I'll admit it. I found metaphor to be an incredibly powerful tool in my career, helping others navigate the pain and heartache of grief and loss and trauma. It's also been truly instrumental in my own healing. That's why I am thrilled to share that I'm in the middle of writing my own book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Don't worry, I got your back. 
I'm compiling all the years of insights, wisdoms, and metaphors I've found most useful so that you can feel seen and held in your grief. Plus, don't worry, it'll be in bite-sized, easy-to-digest doses because I know for me, the last thing I wanted to do in my early grief was read a thick, dense book. If you'd like to sign up for my newsletter to keep up to date about the book or perhaps learn more about grief support via one-on-one sessions or group-guided meditations, then after the show today, head over to reimagininggrief.com to learn more. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Did you have a time in the sort of even starting with quixotic nature, which was more focused on love, but as we said, it was which is inextricably linked with loss, and even in reflections and refractions, did you have a time as you sort of opened up into your inner, you know, landscape that you felt fear that I won't ever emerge from this? I asked that question sort of pointedly because so many of us, when we begin to do the work of grief, whatever that looks like for us, we have this fear that if I really name or shine a light or acknowledge on these hard, dark corners, it's going to always take hold. Yeah, it's going to take hold. I mean, you know, and, and I'm, so did you feel that even in the course of writing these two works? Was there any sense that you were going to sort of get stuck there or did you always know that it was a fluid to be honest, I think my natural disposition and persona is an optimist. <laughs> and regardless of what I'm going through, even if I'm at my darkest <laughs> point, I will still always have an internal dialogue that is like, it will be okay. It will get through. So that has a massive skew in terms of when I'm writing. And if I am or going through something, I fortunately... <laughs> don't end up getting sucked into this vortex of utter self-annihilation to self-destruction. Of course, you know, there have been times I felt very low, but there's still always a little something there that that creeps in. And, you know, in, in fact, in Quixotic Nature, I have a, a poem that is about hope, and it's exactly all about that, that hope springs eternal. It's just, yeah, I, I think it's just purely a personal thing, isn't it? And I think I'm just lucky or fortunate that I tend to kind of have an optimistic outlook and I know firsthand from other people you know friends that we might discuss and they might be exposed to the same thing and looking at one person's <laughs> interpretation of that and how they react to it is very different how I interpret it and, and react to it and I'm thankful for the way I yeah I do think there's some you know, again, it's hard to say whether it was sort of a natural disposition or the exposure of the culture or genetics, whatever. I do think some of us lean that way, and I am too. Since since early age, since an early trauma, I live by the motto AFCO, which is seeing these moments as another fucking growth opportunity. That's what we call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Currently tattooed on my body. <laughs> and I do think that part of why I like your work, part of what I try to do in my work so many writers and thinkers do this, is I do think we misunderstand that grief and hope can exist at the same time and that grief and joy can't exist at the same time. And I think that part of the work of grief is not just unpacking, you know, sort of going into the dark inner landscape of our, you know, grief, deep grief. It's also finding ways to 
sort of, I used a metaphor recently, sort of the build our muscle of joy. And to like cult, like it takes its own cultivated practice. And to do that and to not get hooked that doing that is somehow a betrayal of your grief, but that it's actually in support of you honoring your grief and also will allow you to be present in the heavy moments because you have this muscle of joy or hope that you've developed. That's true. And I was going to say, I was going to add to that. I think the other thing that kind of in terms of hope and something to take comfort from is going back to the thing about nature because nothing gives you more, well, to me anyway, gives me more comfort or peace just witnessing nature at its finest. And I and I have to say, I, quite honestly, and I know, again, it probably sounds a bit overly romanticized to some, but I really do use nature as a way to also negotiate my way through things, which is why I use it so much in my poetry, and to really take pleasure in just the day-to-day witnessing of, even if it's a really small thing, even a, you know, if I see a flower creeping out the concrete on a pavement, I'm like, wow, look at that, that's amazing. But that takes, if if you're in the sort of deep ruts or the tracks of a dark time, whether it's grief or something else, it's so funny you mentioned that. This week, I literally shared that at Reimagining Grief. I was on a walk, and here in Texas, the spring kind of wildflowers are creeping up out of concrete cracks. Yeah, yeah. And I stopped and took a picture. And when we're in the sort of deep ruts of, of in a dark place, for very good reasons, it's that's the way grief unfolds, we can be very... F- easily fall into just that same track or that same rut. And so it takes a kind of almost intentional, disciplined practice to notice the wildflower and to allow that, the sort of simplistic beauty of that thing to maybe shine, you were talking about, shine a little light into that dark corner. Yeah, yeah. And to give you hope. And to give you hope. Let's go back yeah. to that. I was thinking, actually, when we were talking about that and the joy, funny enough, I, I basically... One of the, in fact, it's the last poem in the book is because Rumi is one of my favorites and the, the guest house is one of my favorite poems. I basically, it's like an ode to that, but it's all about that finding joy. And it's in the last chapter, so it's the last poem, which is to do with acceptance and hope, that phase. So if you don't mind. I'd love it, please. That would be a wonderful way to close our conversation today. Again, it's very short, but it's called Dwelling. Maybe now, in the bare chambers of my heart, do I feel ready to furnish them once again with whatever new life, love and delight there is surely to come. Mm. That's my final (laughs) poem of the book. But yeah, there is a point where you feel like you're bereft and there's nothing left and all the rest of it. But it's actually an opportunity there will come a time when you'll want to kind of fill it again with, you know, with love, light, laughter. Delight, amazement. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's inevitable. That's just a given that will happen if you allow it to. If you allow it to. And back to what you were, where we, you know, we started where we're closing with the sort of the cherry blossom and the tree, but this sort of nature metaphor, which is it will, again, if you allow it, because that is the nature of our sort of cycle. And and though we are different in some ways, of course, to the sort of elements of the earth, there is something in that metaphor of nature that teaches us something about that we will emerge different, you know, but that we will emerge in some way and and to allow that ray of... Yeah. 
And there's actually, sorry to go on. There was one other thing it just prompted me to think about, which was that I remember years ago, it's probably, I don't know how long ago, 15, 20 years ago. I remember a very dear friend of mine, I've known her since I was like four years old. She won a new year, just gave me this little card and she just, it was a Chinese proverb, I think. And I still have it and I still remember it. And it's something like, if you keep a green bow in your heart, the singing bird will come. And I just always, again, you know, it really appeals to me because of the nature, but just that, again, that holding hope and, and maintaining that, because if you can do that, it will, you know, things will be okay and you will get that love and joy and delight, like you say. So yeah, that's another thing I just wanted to <laughs> to add in there. I love that. Fad, thank you so much for taking us on this journey that you've been on and your own exploration for sharing a bit of your beautiful work with us today to reminding us. It's a pleasure. I'll make sure to be dropping the link to your works in the show notes for today's episode. I just want to thank you so much. I'm so honored by this conversation. No, thank you. Thank you very much for having the conversation with me. It's a pleasure. Oh, my friends, I don't know about you, but this conversation got me inspired to, well, one, reconnect with nature and two, rediscover some of my favorite writers and poets. Or perhaps it just reminded you that you have your own passions and your own skills that help you discover what you need most as you heal. Whatever you got out of today's conversation, I hope you will remember to allow yourself to emerge. I want to thank Gail Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today. I also want to give a shout out to the Studio Pod team for producing the episode. As we close the show, I'd love to ask you a quick favor. As I mentioned, I love hearing from listeners. After this, I'm asking you to head to Apple Podcasts, find the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, leave a rating and write a review. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my incredible guest, Fad Jamal. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.